Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today, some would say is the big cheese of IGN, the co-founder, the EVP, the CDO, some would also argue the MVP, and he doesn't really seem to age. Pierre Schneider, how are you? I don't know. I, I, not only do I feel old, um, I, I didn't know I was the big cheese. <laughs> well, you are that's, the big cheese, aren't you? That's a, that Somewhat. sounds smelly. smelly. Uh, no, thank, th thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I I do feel really old now. It's been a it's been a long year, and um, you know, I, I I wish I had more time to play games. I got all the year end wrap ups, you know, from Xbox, PlayStation. And Nintendo, and I think you know it's my playtime is north of a thousand five hundred hours or something across those platforms, and <laughs> I, 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 I don't know how I did that with everything else I have to do during the the, the course of the year, and uh, now I feel yeah. tired. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> games right. shouldn't be so much work. Well, I was actually going to ask you this: how you actually find time to play games? I mean, a lot of game developers that I speak to, they don't even play games because they just no. don't have any time, right? So you've obviously got all the content that you're managing at IGN. You're doing a lot of traveling by the sounds of it. Plus, you've got to fit in gaming time. And depending on the game, yeah, you know, like let's say Zelda, for example, that's not a short game. And you no. have to try and fit in all this time. So I have no idea how you do it. No, so I, I spent 211 hours on Tears of the Kingdom, which is the wow. longest I spent in a game this year that I, that I saw in the trackers. Um, it, I mean, it's two things. One, this year was busy in that my wife had a lot of travel. I usually don't play games at home when we're hanging out. We want to do things together. She's not a gamer. You know, we when when the whole family is at home, we we play tabletop games and 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 cook together and do other things like that. But when she's traveling, it's boring. I watch lots of horror movies, which she hates. She hates those movies, so I get to watch all of those and I play a lot of games when she's traveling. And then I myself was traveling a lot. So you know, flying to our headquarters are in um, in Los Angeles. I'm up in the Bay Area. You know, you get to the airport. You've got 30 minutes to an hour. You're hanging out. Flight gets delayed. Thank goodness for the switch, right? And so yes. I, I got a I got a lot of playtime in. Um, when I travel, I prefer to get, play games like Advance Wars, where like it's more, it's it's kind of smaller uh, experiences rather than a big sprawl, sprawling game like a Zelda. I don't like. I don't like story games when on the go, so I get a lot of um, simple game gameplay time done when I'm traveling. And then, yeah, that's that's why I had more playtime on the Switch this year than the other two platforms. I love my PlayStation Five, I love my Xbox, so um, you know I have a I have a Steam Deck as well. It's just too big to carry around. You you don't need like you don't need like a second suitcase suitcase just for for that thing, and then the battery pack that you need so so very quickly. Um, yeah, and then you know I do. I do have kids who are now all of them are older than 18. And so when when games like Super Mario come out or Diablo um or Baldur's Gate, we play together. There's multiplayer. So it's family time and you know, you, you get to sneak in some some hours with the kids. Yeah. So do you have mm -hmm. to try and plan in advance what games you're going to play throughout the year? Like cuz you obviously you know the like let's say in 2024, yeah. You'll you'll know the list of games coming out. But how far ahead would you plan? Be like, okay, I'm going to set time aside for this one and this one, but maybe not this one. Yeah, Never and we, look, we we played um, we played Diablo three on Switch, and we obviously had to buy the game four times because of that, right? Um, with Diablo four, it's a little easier. 
we've got Game Pass subscriptions for everyone in the house. And so, you know, the, the boys play um, uh, on PC, actually Diablo 4 wasn't on Game Pass, but with some of the multiplayer games that are on, on uh, Xbox uh, and, and PC Game Pass, it's a little easier and it becomes a little bit more spur of the moment um, what we play. But with something like Diablo 4, you have to plan ahead, obviously. Mm. Yeah. And then, and then you know, Mario Wonder, one copy of a game, one screen, four controllers. I don't know if this, if you know this, but I have a lot of Joy-Con, so we're all set for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so so those are a little bit easier to share. Yeah, we were t- talking a little bit uh, off here about the whole um, working from home, going mm-hmm. into the office. Um, yep. Do you go into the office much, or do you work from home predominantly these days? So I used to look before the pandemic, I went to the office every day. Um, you know, our office uh, was in downtown uh, San Francisco, but then the pandemic hit and we we closed it pretty early and shifted to partial work from home. We did um, after the pandemic was over, uh, we basically ad- adopted a hybrid model. Mm. Uh, when we do, you know, when, when an event is happening, obviously we get together and we run studio productions and we ran some of those out of uh, San Francisco. But then in the course of the last year and a half, we have really bolstered our presence in L.A. It used to be that L.A. was the small office and then San Francisco had big studio spaces, three big studios. We abandoned that office um, because, you know, who wants to sit on paying big rent for two years when you can't go in? We went to a smaller office for smaller shoots with a one studio set up in San Francisco and then built up L.A. where everybody lives closer, more people are going in. So now we have a three plus and a half studio set up in L.A. So I just spent the last two and a half days in LA this week, you know, commuting there. Um, and that's the general setup for uh, people who are on camera. We we shoot out of LA most of the time, but it's a hybrid model. There's certainly certain tasks that you can do from home really easily. Um, you know, I oversee, um, I, I actually read my, my job is a little different now. You know, I used to oversee the sort of everything, editorial, video production, uh, guides, product realm. I'm on, on a secret project right now that's a little bit more focused um, that has something to do with content and tools. And so a lot of people on that team, you can get all that work done from home. Right. It's not, it's not the same. It's not, I really like being in a shared space. I love morning stand-up meetings with a content team where, you know, you can talk about the biggest stories of the day and you can instantly assign someone or give feedback on direction or somebody may spot something and volunteer it. All of that is a little bit harder to do when you do a morning meeting online through Hangout or Zoom or whatever, right? Where you might have a hundred people on, but like who's going to raise their hand and speak out when they have something to add? Nobody wants to disrupt the flow, right? So you do lose something. And I suppose it also depends on whether you're extroverted or introverted. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. lot of, and there's there's a healthy mix uh, definitely within the company, right? Generally, a lot of engineers are a little bit more introverted. Product managers are a little bit more extroverted. Editorial is a, it's a good mix. You know, we have, we have guide writers who are very extroverted and writers who are introverted and vice versa. So it, it really, it really matters. It, it really depends. And uh, that's, that's great. When was the last time you did interviews, conducted interviews for someone that wanted to get a job at IGN? Or did you to never get a do job that? at IGN? Yeah, if somebody, uh, if somebody, like, because obviously I'm, I'm assuming there's a panel, right? Three, three and a screen hours test. Ago, 
Yeah, I interviewed so, oh, so somebody do... three hours ago. Oh, okay. And I interviewed somebody um, late last week for an open position on the content team we have that we wow. we extended an offer for. So hopefully that one goes through. Yeah, I'm I'm still involved in um, in definitely in a lot of the hiring decisions, but I'm not going to be the one to interview. You know, a an inside salesperson or someone outside of my my realm, but you know, certainly on the management side. Have you got any like weird stories from interviews? I've spoken to a number of game devs, and they always have like that one interview where they have someone that says something strange or they do something strange in the interview. It's less okay. It's less so. It's yes, there are lots, and you know, I obviously can't share all of them, but of course, um, of course, or some of them. But they are um, generally on the content team side. It's people who are genuinely excited to turn their hobby into a job, right? So you get people who are very, very passionate. You sometimes get people who are a little bit starstruck, and and are because of that, and are because of that, are nervous and can't get their point across. And I, I feel really bad about that. But uh, no, I've had when recruiting for management positions. Sometimes it's abundantly clear when somebody doesn't really uh, give a crap, and like you. I've had interviews where I'm like, why am I talking to this person? This person doesn't actually want the job, right? It's a it's a waste of both of our times. It's it, it, it's happened. It's always confounding to me. Maybe if it's somebody like run of the mill. They're just going through a list. No, yeah. you'll get to the. They're so confident. Um, in some cases, maybe they want the job, but they're so confident that they do zero research, right? Like they'll give you advice, like, "Well, IGN should really look into TikTok." I'm like, "Thank you, four million <laughs> followers." <laughs> you know, but but that's those are the sort of moments where I'm like, mm, I find it really hard to get over that, even if you have a a, a competent person on the other side, you know it's the same with cold calls and, you know, companies reaching out to you to offer their services. Like just spend 30 seconds looking at us. Has IGN thought about turning articles into videos? Yeah. Like, yeah. yes, 2.5 billion video views this year. Thank you. <laughs> but how, how do you stay up with all the trends and everything that's happening? Because obviously you have to pivot I mean, and adapt. Do, do I? Well, I don't know. I assume you do. You would uh, someone have to? I mean, because IGN has managed to stay relatively oh, successful. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Like the the channel adapts as it needs to. Yeah, look, you have to you have to hire good people. You have to have a good team. You have to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Um, and what's it, you, what's it saying? The, um, uh, if you're if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Um, it's it sure is nice to be the smartest person in the room sometimes though like course, you kind of need that as an ego booster no it's it, it's honestly about the team you build right and i am i'm in my early 50s i am not the prime target audience for tiktok i open yeah. the app and sometimes shake my head as to what the <laughs> algorithm thinks i would like um but, but i realize the potential i realize the challenges right it's not a platform that's easily monetized from media company like ours i realize that you can't just take what we do on the website and put it on tiktok and expect it to expect it to do well and i have a hunch as to maybe what would do well but um the reason why we succeed there is because we have people on the team who get it there are people who are in the age group who understand what TikTok is. They are prime users of TikTok. They might never touch Facebook or Instagram, but they're on TikTok and they get it. And so it's about making sure that their opinions are, um, are listened to, are, are shared, are followed, that we experiment a lot. And then, you know, the 
big thing, I think, is just fearlessness. That um, the reason why we're big on YouTube today, right? Over a billion uh, views served for the last, I don't know how many years, every year consistently, um, is because we were courageous in the beginning when YouTube was still a, web, a website where people shared um, dog on the skateboard videos or falling into the pool by accident, that sort of stuff, right? It was very much a sort of uh, a viral moments, life moments platform. And we, we noticed that some of our fans didn't like our video player on the website. Some things never change. And they uploaded IGN videos to YouTube themselves. And some mm. of them were getting a, a fair amount of views. And we said, okay, instead of just letting people do this and we make no money, let's just upload them ourselves and make no money because there wasn't a monetization platform, right? But we, we basically said there might be long-term impact when you're programming a platform that people will no longer watch those same videos on your website and you have to you have to be courageous and 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 not look back on something like that and that was the right bet right we even today there are major entertainment um websites that don't put their content on youtube or they don't turn their content into video and um, who are now struggling with social media because so much video is consumed on social media platforms. So yeah, lots of experiments, you know, new platform like Threads launches. Let's see what's there. Let's try it out. Let's, we don't have to, you know, put a full-time person on it, but let's experiment and see if there's a there there. And then if there's activity and users are there, let's figure out what they want, what they need on that platform, give it to them and see eventually maybe we can monetize that. And if not, you can you can always leave later. Well, one of the smart things I think you did as well is because you've got IGN, but then on the on the YouTube, on YouTube at least, you've kind of got different channels that cater for different things, right? So you've got like IGN, then IGN Games, and I think um, yeah. you got IGN Nintendo and all these other things. We did. Is we have we have Cinefix, we have a guides channel, we have a main channel, we have a movie trailers one, we have a game trailers one, and we have a games one, and so the word is out whether that's smart or not we'll see right because um algorithms and platforms are constantly changing yes um we took our we you know we publish podcasts they're primarily consumed in audio format game scoop nvc beyond unlocked um now cinefix is added to the mix um which is an awesome movies podcast you should listen to and um but we also output those as videos and we put them on YouTube. And originally the algorithm had a really hard time getting the right people to those long form videos. So what you got was awesome trailer. Thank you. Awesome review trailer. What is this one hour, one hour talking heads video? Why are you showing this to me? Right. And so the feedback was negative on those videos and it wasn't a fan audience discovering them. It was console warriors discovering them so ah. on the playstation podcast you'd get people mad that it was about playstation on nintendo you get people mad that it was about nintendo and so forth and um so we said can we take those experiences put them in a different place and we so we repurposed the channel we had and turned it into the sort of longer form gaming only podcasty channel and it hasn't really helped those shows grow because obviously being on a smaller That's channel means fewer chances of, of of a video hitting big with a big subscriber audience. But you are you are keeping the same type of content in one place and you're attracting a similar kind of audience that loves to watch something for 60 minutes. Um, but we'll see. The algorithm constantly changes. Right now, YouTube is throwing everybody for a loop by favoring shorts, right? Yep. Every 
every social media and video platform always wants to be what the other one is. And so TikTok, huge success with short vertical viral videos. Now YouTube wants to do the same. Mm. YouTube, big success with long form content. Now TikTok wants to do the same thing, right? So it's this constant like push and pull. What you're seeing on YouTube right now is a lot of a lot of algo juice going towards viral shorter videos. That's tough for a lot of YouTubers because they don't really make any money. They just don't. YouTube no, promises that they that they will and will someday. So we'll see. But right now, it's basically every time you produce a short video and it goes viral, you're making a fraction of what you would make with um, a little bit more effort spent on a longer video. So it's exactly right. I mean, yeah. I suppose you're in a position where you're not just relying on the algorithm per se because you've got advertisers as no. well. But like, say, for a YouTuber who relies specifically on the algorithm to put food on the table. When, when they change things, it, it becomes very, very difficult. Oh, no. we I mean, we all rely on the algorithm because well, you're, yes, pl to, to you're, playing, you're playing on a borrowed platform. And the same is true with a website, right? As, as long as a high percentage of visitation comes through Google, you're depending on Google's algorithm. And Google constantly changes things, right? Yeah. Now they're stacking the top of search results pages with... Google AI generated summaries yeah, that don't yeah. really send a lot of traffic to websites, right? So th these are the sort of challenges that you have to um, that you have to react to in the media business, and obviously we take them seriously. On YouTube, you know, we have I forget what do we have like 15 million subscribers on the main channel, right? That doesn't mean that your content gets in front of those 15 yes, million that's people exactly right. because then YouTube introduced the bell after a while. It segmented the information again because they realized that they're not, they don't have enough churn and discovery of new channels. And so when we publish, uh, IGN is a high volume channel, right? And so um, that means views sometimes are slow to grow because a subscriber to the IGN channel is not going to get all 40 videos that we upload in a day. YouTube picks based on likelihood and, and algo and AI, which wants to show it to you as a user. And then a lot of that, a lot of the views are generated later through recirculation algorithm videos that appear on other channels and so forth. And so, no, I mean, look, we are writing and creating videos for humans. We got to make sure that the stuff we create is trustworthy it's accurate it's entertaining it's targeted and it's something that the audience wants but we're also making content for machines we got to make sure that it's instrumented in the right place and that the right content comes out at the right time and goes on the right platform so much to think about even at the i know and i and it's easy. It's easier to get cynical about that. I sometimes see people in games media complaining that they're writing for SEO. If you you're not SEO means search engine optimization, which means mm. um, optimizing your content so that the Google robots discover it and find enough keywords to say it's relevant enough to bring to the top of a results page, right? But writing for SEO is kind of a silly, uh, a silly concept because. SEO is so that your content gets discovered by people searching for a certain term. And so yeah. it's user interest. Like people are searching for a certain topic. And if you're generating content and it's good and you're helping somebody with a query or a problem they have, then that's just journalism. That's not writing for SEO. So how are you combating, obviously, the whole chat GPT thing becoming a, th oh, man. a phenomenon as it has? Because obviously, yeah, the yeah I mean, you, you had that incident quite a number of years ago with like dead cells and the plagiarism thing. And yeah. All that. Yeah. But now obviously you've got this new AI tool that's mm -hmm. being 
that can basically write an article or an ed editorial for you. And so you could end up hiring someone that's using ChatGPT. I mean, you'd probably have to do some Yeah, no, for sure. Filtering so, out. I, I mean, look, AI obviously as a technology is exciting and it's a, it, they're, as much as we complain about AI taking the jobs of humans, um, you know, it's it, it's it's a little bit the byproduct of any innovation. Anytime we create something that makes work easier or makes processes easier, there is the challenge that it may represent to people who have that job right now. And, you know, usually things adapt and new jobs are formed. And, you know, um, and, and, and I I always believe that the, the good side will win in the end. But there is the challenge with AI that it becomes more and more difficult to distinguish uh, originally created thought um, from machine generated stuff. That's the amalgamation of a thousand opinions, right? Um, I can tell you, I mean, look right now, I, there was uh, I think it was Washington post on New York times report last year that um, listed the top most crawled websites by AI and IGN was in the top 100. We we're pretty high up because wow. We are an old website with lots of pages, deep strategy guides and all of that. And so there's a lot of information that gets crawled. A lot of big wiki sites also obviously are on the list. Um, and so the information that once used to be special can easily be summarized and, um, and taken. Uh, people used to search for when is Grand Theft Auto three coming out, right? And then IGN would be top of Google search results because we have the answer. We talk to the publisher and we keep our dates up to date and all of that. And then people click through and they find the answer. Now Google just takes the answer from a thousand websites, says this is the most likely answer based on magic machines, and then tells you the answer and no longer, you know, there might be a little link somewhere saying, here are the web pages that factored into this number, uh, this this date, but they no longer really drive a lot of traffic for this sort of stuff. To me, you talked about innovation and, and kind of keeping pace uh, of, of what's happening in the industry, keeping ahead of trends. To me, that's an indicator that if you're just a purveyor of facts, you're in trouble. And that's ultimately where viewpoint and tools and you know just the voice come in and are very, very important because those are ultimately defensible. Um, you know, a plagiarist may take off, take the points highlighted in a review and replicate them and put them in their own voice. But usually that sort of stuff comes to the forefront and, and people realize that that isn't original thought. And especially when, you know, the verbiage is not changed. Um, but uh, it is a lot easier to rip off facts. You know, it is. The, it is the summary of a movie, for example. If you just summarize a movie, it's very easily replicated, and what comes out is not unique because the movie never changes. It's always the same movie, but the meaning of a movie, the meaning of its ending, the the you know what are what are the allegories, what are the references, like what you know, how does that relate to me as a critic in my life and the feelings that I felt for uh, when I watched the movie? Those are much harder to replicate. Um, not, not to say that that's all completely safe, but that's why I think, um, outlets worried about AI focus on creating original content that is defensible and unique rather than facts. And yeah. then when, when it comes to plagiarism in, in general, I mean, I can tell you, I am still more worried about humans. Um, not a week goes by that we don't see an IGN strategy guide ripped off 
sometimes like an entire table of that we spent a lot of time creating ripped off wholesale by a known gaming website out there that you know you would definitely know if i said any of them and we like to take the high road and we reach out privately and say hey that's our information either give credit and remove it they usually just remove it because they don't yep. want to give credit and link back to us so um but really? that is that is a that is a real thing that happens all the time and um it's incredibly frustrating and um maybe ai makes it uh ai makes it a little bit easier to get ripped off but maybe ai in the future will make it a little bit easier to find all of the instances of non-original content yeah, well, I've even noticed that with, um, you know, let's say I do a podcast, I interview yep. a, a game developer, then a publication yep. picks it up, they write a piece, and then um, multiple other publications copy that piece and repost it, right? So I can think yep. of a, an incident. Um, so I spoke to the senior designer of the Metroid Prime trilogy. He yep. talked about how on the original Metroid Prime, he did 110 hour weeks, sometimes 36 yep. hour days, and then that got posted and then it basically yeah, yeah. it's compounded yeah 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 and then look the you know journalists i think a lot of journalists do an amazing job citing sources making sure to link back to uh the original websites um ign used to have no follow links for external links that that was an early seo strategy to kind of like shape your pages and make sure that you don't give link juice and power to external domains we got rid of all of that we you know when we link to something it it is discoverable by google we want to cite our uh, our um, our sources when we have an image post on Instagram. We put the source in the image because obviously you can't do uh, you can't do links there. So we're very careful. But mistakes happen, right? And like sometimes a journalist may cite a source that already cited the source from somewhere else, and like a, a story you broke gets regurgitated three times in the end the people credited with the story are no longer you. It's the ones that reported on yeah, you or discovered that's exactly, you. Yeah, right? and that's exactly so, what happened. So that happens. And like in that case, I, I think people are, I think sometimes, uh, you know, those mistakes happen. No, it, it's the sort of uncredited lifting of information that that is obviously a huge challenge. We had, um, we wrote a Mortal, Com Mortal Kombat guide uh, I'll tell you this example. We wrote. I usually we usually don't talk about that stuff publicly, but we wrote a Mortal Kombat guide, and it was before the game was out. We were invited to the studio. We got to. We had an expert player who was freaking amazing in Mortal Kombat. He tested out all the fatalities. Um, he got names for some of them from the devs. Some of them, there were no names. So he created temporary names for the fatalities and wrote how to do them. Day later. On Google, we get outranked by three websites that had the exact list of fatalities with the names that we made up. Oh, that must be so frustrating. Yeah, and then we reach out. We're like, hey, that's our information. <laughs> They're like, no, this is just from the game. We're like, no. Whatever. Because <laughs> <laughs> we are right now fixing those names to the actual names because the game is out and yeah. we're no longer embargoed. And those are not the real names. Those are our inventions. It happens, right? Well, there's not, I, I suppose, how do you even combat it? I mean, there's not much you can really you can, do, can you? Well, you can be Dark Galadriel and go on Twitter. And, you know, uh, certainly um, that's an effective strategy sometimes, right? Um, where, you know, you, you could complain and you could shame people and then hope that it stops. But look, that, that, that's not the way to treat your peers. And you never know, it might be a mistake or maybe it was user-generated content or it was a freelancer and all of that. And so 
our path where we have time, we reach out privately and we try to resolve the matters. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, look, a litigious company could probably make some money off that sort of stuff. But, you know, we we believe in writers and not lawyers. Well, yeah. And you're also trying to combat misinformation anyway, which is a bit of a problem. Just yeah. period. Like, yeah, there's so look, much it, misinformation. Can, you know, people, can ha- I've, I've seen all the memes and all this, you know, critical yeah, and stuff it, people say. And about, it can happen. No, for sure. And it can happen to you, right? Like we we do take great care to make sure that we credit sources and, you know, there, there are news articles every day that credit sources that, that that are visible and explicit. But all it takes is for one mistake to slip through a new freelancer who may may have made a mistake or something or or even somebody experienced like accidentally deletes something or doesn't cite the right source. So instead of throwing glasses, right, uh, throwing glasses. They never throw glasses. Glasses are beautiful. Instead, instead of uh, throwing rocks and and you know maybe uh, uh, damaging some windows, but your own glass house as well. Uh, I'd say, just try to resolve things, and and hopefully people learn quietly. How do you keep a good relationship with say um, studios or publishers? Right. Let's say mm-hmm. some scandal happens and you report on it. Maybe you you break the news and that that annoys maybe the yeah. publisher um because i know for say with there are some youtubers that are that's what they do they just review games yeah and then if, if they give a game a bad score then sometimes mm-hmm. they get blacklisted um that would yeah. never yeah that wouldn't happen to you because you're way too big for that team what are you talking about of course it happens <laughs> really oh, yeah of course it happens yeah it hasn't happened recently i think I think the world has changed a little bit, but uh, I mean, there were companies um, in the early days. I can tell you one because it's out of business and, uh, you know, the reboot has nothing to do with it. But THQ, uh, we pissed off the head of THQ to the point uh, with, with what, was, what was that? Was it Homeworld? No, what was it? One of the one of the shooters, they had a Call of Duty killer and we didn't love it. And um, they were so pissed off. They pulled all the advertising in an effort to strong arm us into, into um, you know, covering it more favorably that the trick is you know we as managers knew about it but didn't tell our writing team we don't want anybody to be biased against the company based on a move like that right so we don't even pass it along but um they pulled their ads and then they uh they didn't send any code anymore it happens well that leads i can see where conspiracy comes from then of people like buying review scores right you know yeah, how that people... does that doesn't happen because if you run a good editorial team and you have sound processes you're fortified from it right so i mean what you're saying is generally true is that um IGN is a major publication if if somebody blackballs us and doesn't talk to us it ultimately means they're not in the news as much anymore and obviously they see some value in being covered by us even if they they uh, they weren't happy with the review score, um, but what's the fallout if they don't send us a game anymore? This it's it's meaningless. It's okay. It's inconvenient in that we have to review the game a couple of days later, but it's not gonna it's not gonna break the company, right? So um, yeah, we've sometimes publishers don't send you code before they, because they know the game is bad. Sometimes they don't send you code because because the game isn't done yet, right? And like and might might actually raise suspicions in that case. Um, sometimes those suspicions are warranted, right? When the uh, the last gen console versions of Cyberpunk weren't sent, and we told people, hey, we only have the next gen version, and so we can't judge the uh, the old ones. And then they turned out to be uh, turned out to have some real issues. 
Um, no, and the, the 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 weapon journalists have, if you want to call it that, is that we can report on the things that are happening. So if a company doesn't send us advanced copies, we can say, and I don't mean this to sound like blackmail, but we can tell our audience, hey, we didn't get an early copy of this game, so we can't give you a review right now. So maybe wait a couple of days for our assessment if you if you want our viewpoint on it. Um, and like, why would any publisher want to play that game? That just seems like it seems risky, right? Yeah. So yeah. does that still happen these days though? Like, are you still, you don't have the blacklisting like you, the whole incident with THQ, that would have been, well, that's, that's ages ago. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. before TH, THQ Nordic uh, rebooted it. Um, I can't think of a, there hasn't been a recent case, but like, um, I think most recently it was probably a movie studio doing it. But again, it's like, it's silliness, right? It's, um, if we don't get access to a screener, our review is what? eight hours later, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, no, it's not, um, it's not something I, I think, I think publishers have evolved and maybe it's, maybe it's because of having to deal with social media and how much more directly accessible they are. Um, and I think everybody, because publishers studios are much more in the limelight now, like now, right now, I think they're treading more like lightly. If you go back 50 yes. years, a company like THQ didn't have a social offering. They had no. a website with information about their games, but that was the only interaction they had with the audience is passive. Users went to their website, learned about their games, and that's it. Now they have dialogue. Publishers promote themselves on social media. They sometimes hire writers from IGN, ex-writers to create content or be on camera playing games and doing Let's Plays, all of that, right? So game publishers and developers are much more like media than they've ever been before. But, you know, they're preaching to the choir and they obviously are an, an extension of a, their, their marketing engine. And so there's this back and forth and they're in the limelight and they want to be beloved. They want to be liked. And so the way to be liked is to not ruffle feathers, you know, cutting off YouTubers and getting them mad at you or cutting off media and getting them mad at you. That's, that's not a good strategy. Yeah. I suppose it's walking the fine line, but say, let's say with Gamergate, right? That became yeah. a bit of a, a political thing. So how does IGN navigate that? Because if you pick a side, you're going to end up pissing off one group of people, right? So, I mean, so with anything that becomes political, do you try and just stay away from it as much as you can? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think journalists don't have to pick a side, right? They're obviously no, they don't, and opinions, and you know, you can report on stuff, but uh, you know, in, but it gets the, viewed the, as taking a side, particularly yeah, yeah. If, if people but, have an emotional attachment. But in Gamergate, sure. if you're media, the audience already says you you have a side, right? So there, there's no really there there wasn't really any dealing with that, and there was some some just horribly misogynist, um, uh, uh, you know, stuff being spewed as part of that, and whatever legitimate concern there was about you know journalists being influenced by by relationships or anything like that was quickly lost and and just kind of turned into this sort of anti-media anti-critics um bull um mm. no like how do you navigate that i mean look i think the the core the core thing for journalists to aim for is to be trusted right and you be you're trusted by demonstrating their processes you want to make sure that you're open that you you have a, a you have a dialogue with your audience but also that 
you position yourself not as a voice of the publishers or the developers, but as a voice of the people. And you do that by covering the things that the people are interested in. Um, I mean, as for example, you can report on microtransactions and say they're really good for publishers because they make a lot of money. Or you can say, but they're really bad for consumers because they are now paying 70 bucks for a game and now they have to pay extra on it, right? And so I think as a journalist, you have to work that walk that fine line sometimes between saying the reason why they're doing this is X, but it really sucks for gamers and we don't like it, right? And so that that it's just it's just about focus and making sure um you're clear about what side of the mouth you're you're talking about and uh and whether you're explaining a business model or you're saying that's a great business model or that's a great thing for gamers, right? Yeah. You've you've done a lot of interviews, but I actually haven't heard you discuss this, but I'm curious as to when you moved from Germany to America, mm. was there culture shock initially or were you able to assimilate into the culture quite easily? I mean, I know you spent some college years in Japan as well. Yeah, yeah. So was that like a good stepping stone in a way? Yeah, I always, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm, I, I never quite felt like, I belonged in Germany. Honestly, growing up as a teenager, I always thought I wanted to move somewhere else. I really liked France too. Italy is awesome. Um, I, and I love Germany. And I, I'm, there are lots of things about me that are very German besides the accent. Uh, you know, whether whether it's the love for beer or the food or, you know, the sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, love of, of certain types of art or landscapes and all of that. But no, I... Um, I, I really felt like I belonged in the US. Japan was a little bit of a detour and uh, I absolutely adore Japan and and you know I go to Japan probably once a year now. Um uh, my daughter studied there for a few years too. Um but no America just felt right. Hmm. And how good you how good's your Japanese just out of curiosity? It's all right now. I mean it's <laughs> been since I lived there. I lived there in 1990. So it's it's been a little bit of uh, uh, my my wife's uh, bilingual. She speaks Japanese. She was born in Miyazaki in southern Japan, so I can get around. My reading sucks now. Um, you know, I, I read. I played a lot of video games in Japanese. Like I played Final Fantasy four, five, and six entirely in Japanese. So I had to learn a lot of kanji, like the kanji for cave or bat or goblin. You know, so I, I learned some out there kanji, but I probably couldn't write them anymore i can i can i can still read dokutsu and komori and all those things uh so so i can still read that's good so yeah. no problem no, yeah and and then with the move to america i obviously like i think the east coast is a lot more european and a lot more like germany right and and california is a little bit uh farther removed but i think that just also attracted me to it um it, it was so different it looked like uh the stuff i knew from the movies and i can't beat the weather, man. Well, well particularly can beat, it, can beat it now, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I suppose America's so vast, right? You yeah. it pretty much offers everything. Yeah. If you if you go around here, there, and everywhere, which I yeah, suppose and you I, mean here, there, and everywhere at this point. I have not. Look, I've been to quite a few different states, right? Everything from uh on, on the West Coast to uh uh you know. Colorado, Utah, Texas, Florida, New York, um, in um, Massachusetts and stuff. Um, but I have some huge gaps. 
I've been to Nebraska too. Um, wow. That was a student exchange uh, in high school. Actually, I went to Nebraska, but I, I, there, there are a couple of states that I haven't been to that I would love to go. Such as? Um, well, I mean, the everything. Um, a lot of a lot of places in the in the center of the country. I've only flown over Arizona, for example. Uh, I have not been to um, I've not been to Maine, where the great Seth Macy resides, for example. I haven't been to Wisconsin, even though they make the best cheese in America, the closest thing to we have, that we have in Europe. So, there are a couple of places I want to go. I mean, last month, obviously, you were traveling quite a lot. So, how the heck do you maintain your energy? Because I suppose there's, there's subtle time differences as well if you're going between different time zones. But I suppose yeah. it depends where, like, are you flying from one coast to the other, or is it somewhere that's? Well, that's... I look. I mean, I, I, we, um, we run a study every two years that we share with clients, um, and then you know next year we're going to take it on tour with PR people as well. That in this case, it's a, it's a study about gamer behaviors. Um, that we used to do with Nielsen, we do with GBK now, um, where we segment the gamer audience and, and showcase, you know, like the old split between core and casual gamer. It's gotten a lot more complicated. And so we walk through, you know, what what how Gen Z differs um, um, from other demographics and, and their sort of platform preferences, likes, dislikes. So we did a tour uh, where um, our publisher and I um, present the findings to clients. And that could be anyone from, you know, major game companies to advertisers, uh, you know, um, and, and uh, 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 agencies, advertising, uh, client agencies and stuff. And so, yeah, we would do, we'll, we would hit up uh, New York and Boston in one go. And we've got a bunch of them planned. And then we take a little break. I, I don't do a tour where I just constantly go from state to state. I'd be... Very, oh, you'd be naked. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah also, after a couple of presentations, I lose my voice too, so that wouldn't work. Is it just because you're talking so loud? I am very loud. No, it's just talking so much. You know, yeah. a presentation is like an hour of talking, so nonstop, and you do that, and then you go out to dinner, and you have to. Restaurants in America are very loud. You have to yell over the music, and everything. yeah, they are. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And I've, mm. by the way, I've never been to New Zealand. I've never been to Australia. I was going to go visit the, our Australian office. Um, is and Australia, the Australian hit. office is in is it, it's Sydney or Sydney. Melbourne? Yeah, Sydney. Yeah, and I've got some friends, um, uh, you know, in, in New Zealand and in, in Australia and other places like Perth and stuff too. It's but just never, a bit of a mission to out. fly. It's just a little far. Just yeah, a little yeah. Far. Well, it's I like just went to. I was at uh, PAX Australia because I hosted mm -hmm. something there in mm -hmm. October and that was a four-hour flight. From yeah. Where I was. Yeah, and that's just to Australia. Yeah. So flying anywhere takes me ages. Four <laughs> hours is nothing. That's that's less than going to New well, York. Well, that's, that's, that's the smallest yeah. flight yeah, I can yeah, get yeah, anywhere, okay, right? Okay, so that's, okay. that's the small side. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, flying anywhere. Like if I was to fly to LA, I think that's about 15 hours, I think. Yeah, that's an hour for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So easy, yeah, easy. Yeah. 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 Do you think there could ever be a fourth competitor? Or do you think it's it's um going to contract somewhat? The consoles? Yeah, because obviously there's the, the competition is so fierce. And I think Amazon have tried and Google have tried. 
It seems like the market really wants to, um, because I would say that uh, the X, the Xbox and PlayStation are very similar. Right? They are. Yes. That's not to say that obviously Xbox has awesome franchises that aren't on PlayStation. PlayStation has awesome ones that aren't on Xbox. But there's a huge difference between Nintendo and Xbox and Nintendo and PlayStation, but not between PlayStation and Xbox. Yes. Um, and I mean, what I thought before the Activision acquisition, I thought Microsoft would accelerate towards a streaming subscription platform where Game Pass would be a service that you get everywhere, right? Uh, they certainly have a strong lineup of, of developers. I mean, that's like, it's the Netflix model, right? Where if you want Stranger Things, you got to subscribe to Netflix. And I thought that's where Xbox was going to go, but then... Uh, all of the legal wranglings around um, not becoming a monopoly in streaming I think, <laughs> yeah. are are pushing back on that a little bit. And so it sounds like everybody's going to be making consoles for a while. But I think it'll be three. There'll be an there'll be an Ouya or something like that popping up, but not really getting through anymore. And, you know, before it was, I mean, let's face it, the only ones who could launch a platform would have been the big TV and electronics manufacturers like your, you know, Matsushita Panasonic or something like that, uh, uh, Pioneer and all, all that. That's Matsushita, Matsushita Denki, Japanese company. But they built the hardware for other companies or um, big game studios like your Activisions and EAs. And they're not interested in that. They are, the profit margins of the hardware business are much lower than the than the software business. Well, that's why... Um... Sony and Microsoft traditionally sell at a loss and try to make it back on games, right? Whereas Nintendo don't yeah. do that. Yeah. No, no. And, and and yeah. And look, depending on chip prices, obviously that that shifts for the other two as well. But yeah, I mean, look at Epic. Epic's got the biggest game on the market. They, yeah. they're, Fortnite is becoming a platform. Fortnite is a console. It's just there's no box, right? You're going to yeah. boot up Fortnite and every character from everything is in there except Nintendo. And um and now you can play Lego in it and you can play uh, Rock Band in it and you can play racing games in it. And it's just going to keep expanding. You can play user-made games in it. Um, it's the sort of epics and the Robloxes of the world that are closest to what consoles are really now. But they're not going to make a box. No. What's IGN's philosophy when it comes to leaks? Like, let's say, hypothetically, let's say you manage to obtain a whole bunch of information that was correct about the switch too right yeah yeah would you publish it or would you wait would you discuss it with nintendo first oh i see look i, I mean i can't answer that on behalf of the editorial team right like um john our publisher is leading that team now and and the uh is is shaping the you know the approach and the policies there traditionally you know what I would have done is um, when we get a leak of information, we definitely want to go to the source. Uh, we would go to the source and and say, here's what we have. Can you confirm it or deny it? Most of the time that doesn't result in anything. No comment will probably. Um, the answer. And then you have to, we, we have to have stuff. Um, we have to have things validated by multiple sources. We don't publish something based on a single source. So we would have to validate it and get somebody else to go on the record. That's what we did back in the days when things like, you know, we got the Metroid Prime leak that it was going to be first person and what it was going to look like. We needed two people to tell us that that was true and the direction before we ran the story. And that that still holds true. 
um, that we need multiple sources. But now there's also the precedent that you have to tread lightly when it comes to legal matters, right? Back in the mm. Wild West days of the internet, you could have grabbed a slide from a leaked document and put it online. You can really get your publication into trouble that right now because if you're if you're accused of disclosing company secrets or you know it's there's uh, there's copyrighted information in there, like if you're distributing distributing an image that you explicitly don't have um, the right to host, um, you can get in trouble. So you have to be careful. So the inner workings of reporting on a leak would be verify the information, figure out if it's true, try to get the official source to comment. You know, if the official source doesn't comment, that doesn't mean that you don't write it, right? You want to pursue the story. Uh, and then you got to run it by a legal uh, a legal head and see what you can do. Mm. Mm -hmm. Does IGN take credit for Nintendo um, making a live action Zelda film? Considering that you no. guys... <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely Who knows? Not. They may have, they may have no. referenced that when they were thinking about it. If and look, considering how long it took for them to make one, maybe you had the well, opposite effect, and they said, "Oh, this looks like crap. Let's not make one." Uh, I was honestly, it fifteen years ago, wasn't it? Was it fifteen years ago that you guys did that I, video? I don't know what is time. Um, no, it's. Uh, it, I thought they would do Zelda as an animated show. So like, you see, you see stuff like Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix. You're like, oh. That's what it should look like, you know. Yeah. Maybe maybe not as much uh, blood and finger cutting and stuff. But um, yeah, no, I was actually surprised that they're doing live action. Yeah, so was I. Yeah. I, I thought they'd do the whole animated thing. They'd follow in the steps of Mario. Um, yeah, yeah. Because so... because the creatures obviously you can CG everything, but like characters like Ganon are tough to pull off. I think like where you know pull off in a way where you go that looks like the thing that I have in my mind, and even Link very difficult to pull off voice or no voice right i don't know we'll see i'm i'm look i'm excited um look at the last of us that was beautiful yeah it was and adaptations of video games are getting better and better now i mean there yeah. used to be what what's known as the video game movie curse right where yeah well, thank you game... uwe ball right the german <laughs> director he just kind of it was more like a tax write-off than an intent to actually make good movies um no, uh, it was the same hump that comic book movies had to get over. Um, I grew up as a kid excited about with Spider-Man and Thor and loved the Fantastic Four and always wondered, why don't we get these as movies and TV shows? And then we got one. We're like, oh, that's why. Um, it took Tim Burton and Batman to break that curse. And suddenly, you know, and then it didn't quite go for like we still didn't get a real spider-man we still didn't get marvel and then it took another it took the mcu to break that curse once and for all and now what used to be niche characters like you could walk around town and show somebody an iron man comic book 20 years ago and they wouldn't have known who the character is now it's a billion dollar movie franchise each movie makes a billion and it's everybody recognizes iron man that's going to happen yeah. with video games it will it will yeah i mean i i i do wonder what they're going to do because are they going to shoot it on the volume? Are they going to shoot it on set? How much of it is CGI? How much of it isn't? It'll be um, a lot of CGI for sure, for sure. I, um, I personally think they should shoot it in New Zealand just because the Lord of the Rings was done here and it was, you know, the fantasy. So you setting. can tell you can tell that the Nintendo um, Zelda team are huge fans of Lord of the Rings because Twilight Princess came out after Peter Jackson's films, and 
it had like the 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 wild boar like war writing it had scenes that looked very much like lord of the rings and so i i think that's the look and the style they love i wouldn't be I surprised i think they even said that yeah. during development yeah. they they referenced lord of the rings i think yeah. miyamoto even said to reference yep. it i think i remember reading it somewhere yeah there you go yeah yeah so, so we'll see we'll see what happens yeah are you um hanging out for metro prime 4 or are you over you mean, at this will, point? Do you mean, will I still be alive when that game comes out? I don't know anymore. Um, no, look, I, I think Metroid Prime Remake was a nice little... Oh, little, it was amazing. Um, a nice little reminder for us how good retro can be and how good retro was. And I think for them, it was a project to really get to grips with the franchise again and get a feel for it again and like... They do half as well um, with Metroid Prime 4. I'd be happy. I'm very excited for it. It's, I mean, is it coming for this Switch? No, it's going to be the next one, right? You reckon? I figure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The next, I think the next Switch is going to be a hardware upgrade and not a re revamp, right? There, there are the pictures of um, some Nintendo patents with like dual screens that can be taken apart. I, I don't think that's Switch 2. I think Switch 2 is going to be like Switch um and it's not going to be a ds it's going to be like switch but more powerful to allow for um, more up-to-date games on it and i think metroid prime will be a will be a showcase i hope they do like the the super nintendo route right from the original nes just upgrade the specs and the hardware i don't think you really need to change anything i mean it's a perfect model the way it works it happened with the the Wii and the Wii U is a little bit that step forward, right? Even though we got a screen, um, it, it really the Wii U looks and feels and smells like a Wii. Um, and I and now that we're on Switch, I feel like the Switch is the Switch. To, the next thing is going to be an upgrade from a Switch and not a complete different direction, not a complete redo. Yeah, I mean the Wii U's yeah. biggest hurdle, I think, was marketing. Really, I mean, I I felt sorry for Reggie during that time because he was having to spin everything to make it sound good and i suppose it's a very difficult position to be in, in it's in a... you know what I, I think it's more than just marketing I, I i hear you um it was difficult to explain to people that it wasn't just a new controller and was actually a new console but uh lineup wise it didn't have the heavy hitters that people at that time wanted to play um the tablet design, I don't think, was very attractive. It looked like a toy. It looked chintzy, and it had lots of fingerprints at all times. The menus, I don't know if you remember this, when you first got your Wii U, it was sluggish. Yeah. Everything took forever. As cool as that sort of community screen was with like with the little people running in, <laughs> it took forever to do anything and to switch between the screens. You couldn't even power it on with just the TV off and all of that. It was a bit of a mess. And then the core the core gimmick was that you could play, um, that you had games that would play on two screens. And very few games outside of Nintendo Land really demonstrated that in the best way. Yeah, it was more convenient to have a map screen on inventory screen on the small screen, but was it necessary? I feel I feel the same way about the touchpad on the PlayStation controller. Who really wants to swipe on that thing? Give me a break. We just all use it like a giant button. <laughs> Yeah. Put a well, button there. I, yeah. I do think that the Wii U's failure led to the Switch though. So in some ways oh, yeah. it was probably a necessity in order to get the Switch because they probably had that idea in mind but maybe the technology didn't exist at the at at that time or it was too it expensive. Definitely didn't. 
Yeah. And it, it, even when the Switch came out, we kind of doubted that they'd be able to do a portable slash console hybrid at a cost effectively that wouldn't run out of battery so fast, right? And, and I think they were they really they wanted the battery to last longer and, and they made a compromise. But um I, I thought the switch turned out way better than any of us expected. And uh, now it's what it came out in 2017. It's a getting a little long in the tooth. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned our segmentation study earlier when we asked what is your what platforms do you own? Switch shows up really high, right? It's got an install base north of like 130 million now or something. Well, it's the right? third best selling console ever now. Yeah, right? but yeah. when we ask what's your preferred platform, only 13% of gamers said it's Switch. It's just getting long in its tooth and it needs a refresh. Yeah, so hopefully that comes soon. I, I imagine they'll wait till after Christmas and New Year's and then they'll announce something. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, but that we'll, would be nice. We'll see, yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll wrap up in a bit, but I'll just, um, I wanted to ask if, if there's one thing that you think people misunderstand about IGN, what do you think the number one thing would be that people seem to assume or get wrong? I mean, look, there's this, this on YouTube, the, the, you brought it up earlier, right? Like this sort of paid reviews thing um, is is kind of a, a a hilarious misdirect because it really was born out of the fact that on platforms like YouTube, the content creator and the salesperson are the same people. If you're a YouTuber and you make a huge video, you make more money. If you're an IGN editor and you make a huge video, you make the same amount of money. True. If we have salaried employees, we have freelancers who are being paid per project. We don't pay people based on the views and we don't directly benefit from generating more views, right? And so the the thing that people don't understand is even though we play on those platforms, we play on viral platforms like TikTok, we play on YouTube, we are a classic editorial outlet and that includes the checks and balances. We have a separation of what we call church and state we don't know which one is editorial, whether it's church or, or it's the state and which one is sales, but we separate those processes. And there's an editorial leader and then there's a sales leader. And the two don't really meet in the in the sort of planning and processes and keep things separate. And there's an understanding that if we don't like a game and we give it a bad score, that could have an impact on the advertising business, but that is the price of doing business in the editorial realm. Mm. And the only way to grow audience is to is to consistently earn and renew consumer trust if you if you let it slip if you have you know if you remember the whole gerstman gate thing with gamespot where honestly some idiot exec decided to fire someone because their voice was too incendiary or you know people tied to one review i don't i don't know exactly what happened there but like somebody got let, got fired over pissing off an advertiser when something like that happens it can have years of damage and no outlet in their right mind would ever want that um and so the misperception that publishers exert a lot of pressure is just the one prevalent misconception that bugs me it's very difficult to get around that because the audience becomes an echo chamber they tell each other right i i see this all the time it's like 
we we gave Call of Duty a less than stellar review this year, and then the the comments are like, well, of course IGN would give it a less than stellar review because <laughs> they're owned by Microsoft now, and IGN doesn't like Microsoft. I'm like, where's this even come from? Yeah, it got a less than stellar review because we didn't like the game this year, um, and we've demonstrated again and again. And obviously, we just gave Hi-Fi Rush a nine, and it's nominated for Game of the Year. So obviously, it's not that we don't like Xbox either, um, but it's the that sort of you know when the audience kind of runs with a conspiracy and then just kind of piles on and then in some cases youtube influences even amplify that and 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 do this sort of thing that tucker carlson always does with i'm just asking questions you know <laughs> um you have to do more than just ask questions you, you also have to have you have to understand how how uh, how journalism works and what checks and balances are in place we have, uh, if you go to corp.ign.com on our corporate website, I know corporate, but it, it but it's where we house a lot of our uh, documentation and our policies. And you can see our policies disclosed, how things work, how reviews are done, how reviews are assigned, what the numbers mean, what happens if a reviewer knew, let's say um, a reviewer, a former IGN editor now works for a game publisher and is roommates with someone who covers the game. Like what happens, right? And all the sort of checks and balances that we have in place to account for that, counter that, and make sure that our our, our processes are separate and protected. But all of that documentation doesn't actually make it into the mainstream, right? People don't seek out that information. It's, a no, lot of times, it's they don't. It's easier to go like, "All games media is paid for," right? Like, <laughs> it's the easy explanation that if you if you didn't love a game that I absolutely love, it's easy to say that you're wrong because X, Y, Z, than to just concede and say we have different tastes. That's a good way of summing up. Yeah, I look. It's a it's a big topic. I could talk talk about that stuff for for um for ages. But you know, the the takeaway. I don't want the takeaway to be that um everyone is wrong and you know we're we're always right. It's like we can have a review. Uh, we can have a negative review of a game where maybe the majority of IGN editors goes, "Oh, I actually like that game a lot better." We're not a hive mind. We're a bunch of different gamers with different tastes, but we obviously have to have one representative review because we can't have 10 people reviewing the same game. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to review as many games as we do, right? Well, if, uh, if you, yeah. yeah. I was going to say- Games like, wouldn't be served, yeah. Well, if you, you've got some of those like top 100 lists, right? Where yeah, top yeah, 100 yeah. games on Super Nintendo, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of you that sit there for hours oh, you know, it's, deliberating. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to decide yeah. what the list should be. No, for sure. Yeah. And there's there there are always games on there where I'm like, like I don't <laughs> like don't don't be mad anyone. I, I don't like the Ninja Gaiden games. I just don't like them, especially the 3D ones. I think Team Ninja. I swear, man, Team Ninja. Somebody's mother got killed by a camera because they really have it out for cameras. Um, <laughs> I I never I could never get into those games, but there are people who love those games. I think IGN gave Gaiden three a, a nine as well, right? But I have to concede that I'm a different gamer, and some mm. gamers love some gamers love roguelikes. I'm not a big roguelike fan. I love Metroidvanias, where I I unlock a map and I populate the map and I clear out rooms. And some people want that sort of um, the ability to go back and get better, and 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 they're probably way more skilled than I am at games. And I think more people need to realize that that is the crux of any sort of dis disagreement. And 
at IGN, once in a while, I see somebody go like, well, IGN gave God hand a three. I'm like, Jesus, what was that? 1895, an editor who hasn't worked here for 20 years gave that game a bad review. As an editor, Mitchell loves God hand who works at IGN, right? That sort of realization that nothing is a hive mind, but obviously in the interest of time, we put forward opinions by singular people. We also have op-eds with different viewpoints on different topics. And all of those viewpoints should enrich your experience. A negative review of a game you love does not turn the game bad, and it does not take away from your opinion of the game. Well, people get obsessed with the Metacritic store, uh, score. I yeah, which is meaningless, right? That is an amalgamation of different viewpoints, and the source of the information is obfuscated. Like, there may be a nine from a huge RPG expert on Baldur's Gate 3. And then maybe a, a three from uh, someone who has never played a video game before and is a first time writer for a smaller website. And the two are equated and are exactly the same, right? In that system. So um, I think that's, I think, I'm not an aggregator hater, by the way. I love, I love Rotten Tomatoes too, but um, I I think it's way more nuanced than gen like creating a number generalizing and taking that as the end all be all because we're we're all humans with different opinions and different likes and dislikes and i don't know if the people who review advance wars remake are as big advance wars fan as fans as i am and so it is important that we engage with the critics and the the uh the people writing those opinions take a look at actually what's written and not just judge everything based on a score starfield's a great example Dan gave it a seven. That means it's a good game. He has got some real issues with it, but he lauds it for a lot of things, including the sort of universe and world creating. But the story out there is that it's it's a negative review. It's not, right? It's yeah, a negative people are saying it's a, it's a bad game because it it didn't get in the 90s and Metacritic. People wanted it a nine, right? They wanted it to be a nine on based on their preconceived notions. And our reviewer is a huge fan of Skyrim and the other Bethesda RPGs and wanted it to be a nine too, right? He was a <laughs> fan, would have loved for it to be better because ultimately this is the game he experienced and he fanned over and, and, uh, and would have loved to like better. But credit to him for not feeling, not buckling under the pressure of fans saying this must be great otherwise i will hate you right like he didn't buckle and he gave it his own uh, his honest opinion and in addition to a score that says it's a good game and it's a seven which based on your interpretation you can say then it's not for me or it is for me there's a whole review that breaks down um why he arrived at that number and that review also tells you that he didn't like the items, the uh, inventory system, and it's frustrating. And I agree with him. I walk around. I'm like, is that weapon better than the weapon I have? Because, oh, God, I don't have it equipped now, right now. How can, can I compare? And it's worth calling out that games like Borderlands solved this issue years ago, right? And a, ga a gamer may look at that and go like, I don't care. I'm the kind of person who loves going into menus and spending time, and or I just ignore all the pickups and only upgrade every couple of hours. And so to them, that comment is really valuable because they know whether they'll like that experience or not. And the number is just not as meaningful. Mm. It must be hard though, because some of these reviewers, they have to review these games that are like 100 hours. Well, they can, can yeah. be 100 yeah. hours. And so they have to bang it out within a certain time to get the review out, right? Yeah. 
Most of the time they have enough time though. I mean, that's the the nice thing about having early access is that we do get to play the games early enough to be able to take that time. Yeah. Um, sometimes we get multiple copies and then we have multiple people playing and checking them out and like talking to each other. And so there's also sort of reviewer feedback with each other and pointing out things um, that, that one person might have missed. So, uh, but that said, you know, we've had games that the publishers haven't sent us. And so, the audience gets really mad when there's not a day one review, but we say, hey, here's a review in progress. We have a review diary. We'll share with you what we've experienced. And hopefully some of that is already guidance enough to give people the sort of, should I wait or should I jump in on day one guidance? Mm. Well, Pierre, I will wrap up there. I'll give you awesome. some some family time back. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. It's actually meeting time. I have another meeting. Oh, you have another meeting. Okay. Well, um, yeah, yeah. take care. Um, great talking to you. And I'm sure I'll see you at some point. Um, yeah. I'm supposed to be, supposed to be, it might not happen, but um, I might be doing a special thing at PAX West um, nice. next year with X Retro Studios devs to celebrate the Ooh. 20th anniversary of Metroid Prime 2 and the 10th That's anniversary amazing. of Tropical Freeze. So PAX have agreed to it. But they just need to allocate budgets and see if it's going to work. So I won't know for sure until April. Amazing. I want to go to that. That sounds so good. Yeah, yeah. So I'll um, if it happens and you're in Seattle, yeah, I'll buy you yeah. coffee or something. Yeah, look, and if before then you're in San Francisco, please yeah, uh, yeah, let yeah, me know. Sure. Let me know. We'll get together. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Well, awesome. I'll let you go, Pierre. Take care. Have a good one. Take care. See, see ya. See ya.